about to wrap up our FAQ series. If you've been with us the past few weeks, um, we've actually spent the last, I think, this was week eight, uh, answering frequently asked, frequently argued, frequently avoided questions. And we've kind of hit a lot of controversial topics head on. Uh, and we've themed up every Sunday. Last week, we talked about prayer, hearing from and talking to God. If you weren't here, highly recommend you check out the podcast. Just go to citychurchlb.com, hit the media tab. But today, as we wrap up, we don't have a theme. We got just a bunch of other questions that came in that I think are worthy of answering, but they don't go around anything. So today in part eight, we're doing miscellaneous questions. Uh, so some of these may apply di- directly to you. Some of them may not affect you too much, but we'll start out with question number one for the day. And this is why this is PG-13. Is Santa real? Uh, didn't want to ruin this for anybody's kid. I uh, don't want to be the bad guy who, yeah, uh, ruined, spoiled it for you. We had a family in first service, by the way, who told me afterwards that their girl was 16 before she found out that Santa wasn't real. So you might even be over kid city age and you still might hate me. Uh, but uh, the truth is there is no white Santa. There is no black Santa. Uh, there is no Santa, uh, at least not in, in there. There is no man who flies around the world on Christmas Eve and drops down chimneys and brings presents. Uh, and I know most of you probably already knew that. I don't think too many people are heartbroken uh, by that news. If you are, I'm sorry, um, but uh, we warned you. Uh, but here's what I think this question does matter. I don't think, I think most people know that Santa's not real, but the underlying question may be, what am I supposed to do with my kids? Do I teach my kids about Santa or not? Um, and I'm not gonna tell you one way or the other. I think you need to pray that through and, and make that decision for yourselves. What I will tell you is that my wife and I are not planning to teach our kids about Santa, and, and I'll give you a couple reasons why. You can take this or leave it. Now, in our, our principles for this series, we said when the Bible speaks clearly, we'll speak clearly. When the Bible gives us a principle, we'll give a p- principle, and when the Bible doesn't say anything, I'll give you my opinion. This is number three. This is Pastor Troy's opinion, so take this or leave it. Do what you want with it, but uh, I'll, I'll give it to you anyway. So my parents did not teach me to believe in Santa Claus because... My grandparents did teach my dad to believe in Santa Claus. And when he got old enough to realize Santa wasn't real and the tooth fairy wasn't real and the Easter bunny wasn't real, and some of you are just really heartbroken as I'm going down this list, um, he he said, well, you know what? Then Jesus must not be real. He must be made up too. And so my dad went through a season where he, he didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in Jesus because Santa wasn't real, and that's what mom and dad taught me. And so he came back around, and God saved him later in life, and and I'm very grateful that he did. But he decided, I'm not teaching my kids this, because I don't want them to make that same connection. Um, So that's one reason why we're not planning to teach our kids to believe in Santa. There's another one that I think you should at least consider um, and, and decide what you need to do with this. And that's this. Christmas in America becomes all about Santa Claus. Uh, to where like you have these movies and -and so-and-so saves Christmas, right? Ernest saves Christmas. And what does it mean to save Christmas? It means to make sure that Santa makes his rounds, right? And and I've heard parents say this. In fact, probably multiple people that that I'm close to, that I love, that I respect have told me this recently. They went through a financial hardship, maybe a situation like Josh and Elena. Somebody lost their job and they're like, I don't even know if my kids are going to have a Christmas this year. And, and I get the heart of that. The heart of that is I want my kids to, to be blessed. I want to be generous to my kids. And, and, I, and I want to be generous to my kids too. But we've determined in our house, Christmas is not going to be just about gifts. Like whether we get gifts or whether we don't get gifts, we're going to have Christmas. Because Christmas is about Jesus. We're going to celebrate Jesus whether we've got the, the greatest gifts this year or the least gifts or no gifts at all. Um, and, and so, again, I'm not telling you not to teach your kids about Santa. But if you do, here, here's what I would recommend. 
um, I, I would recommend making Santa's gifts less significant than your gifts. Whatever you decide to give from Santa, like make your gifts better. Because that does two things. First of all, if I'm buying something, I want the credit. Um, that's just how I roll. If I'm sacrificing, I'm planning, like I want you to know daddy did this. Not some fat dude in a red suit. Your fat daddy did this, right? So, so that's, what, that's me. You can do what you want, but that's me. Um, but, but secondly, I, I don't want... If, if all of Christmas becomes about is what's going to be under that tree on Christmas morning, that's where the folk, like, I don't blame a kid. How is a, a guy who was in a manger 2,000 years ago going to compare to a guy flying on reindeer uh, to drunk, come down my chimney to put stuff under my tree? Like, how is that even going to compare? Uh, and so if the excitement, the anticipation is all about what's Santa going to give me, then, then Jesus becomes very, very, not even just secondary. Like, he just gets pushed down the list. And for me... Christmas is about Jesus. Uh, and yeah, I'm a pastor, and yeah, that's what I'm supposed to say. But, but the Christmas story to me is awesome. And it's powerful, and it's life-giving. And I want my kids to grow up celebrating that, not celebrating their presence. So for us, we, we've debated, and we haven't made this decision yet. Judah's only 20 months old, so we, we got like another year before we really got to settle on this. But we've talked about we may go every other year where we do gifts. And the opposite year, we, we have a budget, and they get to decide who are we going to bless. We're going to give this to this organization that they believe in. We're going to give to your friends who don't have anything. Like, we're going to find somebody to bless, and the kids are going to be engaged in that. We haven't 100% decided, but we know for us, it's not going to be, if we don't have gifts, it's not Christmas. Because Christmas is about so much more than what's under the tree for them. So that's where I stand on the Santa thing. Take that or leave it. If you love Santa and you believe in Santa, and like, you know, I'm not like, hey, you need to walk out of here and have a conversation with your seven-year-old. Um, that's fine. Just, just consider what message are you sending your kids about what Christmas is really about. Um, next question. Uh, talking about people flying through the sky. Do you think there's life outside our planet? Um, short answer is no. Uh, I do not know this. The Bible does not say. Uh, I don't think there are aliens for, for a couple reasons. And when I say life outside our planet, I mean intelligent life equivalent to humans on our level or beyond or whatever. Um, so is there some living creature of some sort on another planet? Maybe. But, but equivalent, there, there's nobody else made in the image of God. There's nobody else that is, is equivalent to us, in my opinion, because think this through. If there isn't life on another planet, now does Jesus have to go to that planet to die for their sins too? Does he somehow broadcast what he did on our planet to their planet? Uh, is there a planet somewhere where they didn't sin? Their, their Adam and Eve were better than our Adam and Eve, and there's a civilization of 70 billion people that, that's the sinless place? I, I just don't think it follows with, with what I know about God and who he is. Now, I could be wrong, and we might get to heaven, and there's people walking around with crazy-looking heads. I don't know. I don't think that'll be the case. Uh, so my best answer is highly unlikely. Um, Speaking of aliens and people with weird-looking heads, is Donald Trump a Christian? <laughs> these are all questions that were submitted by our people. I did not insert any of these. Uh, ultimately, God and God alone knows where Mr. Trump's heart is. Maybe, maybe Mr. Trump. Um, God knows things about all of us that none of us do. And so for any of us, it's hard to say with 100% certainty that this individual is a Christian or that individual is not a Christian. However, Jesus did say that they will know us by our fruit. So we can judge the fruit of someone's life. We can judge the words 
that someone says about their relationship with God. I'm pretty sure in most cases, if somebody says they're not a Christian, we can take that with high level of confidence that they're not a Christian. Mr. Trump doesn't say that. He says he is a Christian, um, but he also says some other things that are interesting that I think are pertinent here. One thing that he said that I think gives us an idea where he might be at uh, was at a campaign rally in 2015 in Iowa. And this has got a lot of news. Maybe you've heard it or not. But he was asked at this campaign rally if he's ever asked God for forgiveness of his sins. And here's what Mr. Trump said. The quote will be on the screen. This is July of last year. He said, I'm not sure that I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so. I think if I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. Now, all of us can, can say some things that are misstated or misconstrued at times. And he was asked to clarify that statement multiple times. One of the examples when he was asked to clarify uh, was in January of this year. And here was his response. He says, I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. And I am good. I don't do a lot of things that are bad. I try to do nothing that is bad. Now, again, I don't know Mr. Trump's heart. I don't know where he is in his relationship with God. I cannot say with certainty he is a Christian or he's not a Christian. I can't tell you this. If you and I went to Starbucks, we sat down for dinner one day, and we're talking about your relationship with God, and you told me, I don't think I've ever asked for forgiveness, I would tell you, you're probably not a Christian. Um, because forgiveness is, repentance is central to our walk with God. We, we, we cannot receive Jesus as our Savior without acknowledging our need for a Savior. And what, do we, what is that? It's saying, I've got sin in my life. I need, I need to be saved. I need to repent. I need to turn from my sin and give my life to you. Um, when we pray to, to lead somebody to Jesus here at City Church, we always say somewhere in there, I, I turn from my sins and I turn to Jesus. Forgive me my sins. Um, that is so central to salvation. Now, is it possible for somebody to be saved without those exact words and their hearts in the right place? Absolutely. I don't want to legalize this and, and make that there's some magic recipe to salvation. It's, it's again, it's a statement of the heart, but from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we say, I don't think I've ever asked for forgiveness. I have very serious questions about whether you know Jesus. Now, these quotes most recently were from January of this year. It's possible Mr. Trump has asked for forgiveness since then. I'm certainly not condemning him to hell. I'm certainly not saying he's not gonna, ever going to meet Jesus. But based on when he made that quote, I would say the likelihood is pretty low that he knows Christ. Now, just in the interest of fairness, based on a lot of statements and actions, I would say it's pretty unlikely that Hillary Clinton is a Christian either. Uh, so Republican or Democrat, we're probably looking at some, some not so great options in 2016. And I don't think you just have to vote for a Christian either. I think there's many times where, especially as our culture moves further from Christ, we're going to have to vote for somebody who doesn't know Jesus, but who's going to do the, the best things that they can. So I'm not telling you who to vote for. Um, what I would say is this. I, I want to give you four quick principles about this upcoming election and, and any election. Four things as Christians that we should do. I almost wanted to do a, a specific day in our Q&A series. When I got this question, I was like, we're doing a qu an election. We're doing a politics question, but nobody else submitted any political questions. So it got thrown in miscellaneous. But here's four things I would tell you as a Christian. Number one, I believe Christians should vote. Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, that we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Uh, I believe that we should have an impact on culture. Proverbs 11, 11, I say it all the time. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. Our community should be better because we're here. Our state should be better because we're here. Our country should be better because we're here. 
and voting matters. Now, if you know me, you know I have political opinions, but politics fall pretty low on my list of priorities. I think as Christians, our job is to tell people about Jesus, not to run political campaigns. Uh, so, so I'm not just out there all the time picketing and holding signs and, hey, vote for this person and that. But, but I do think it's important that we vote. Uh, I do think it's important that we are engaged and involved in the political process. And I think there's definitely times where God's going to place it on a Christian's heart to run for office. And if you get that desire, man, run and let us know so we can support you and get behind you. Um, Number two thing I would say is a Christian should pray. So if you're eligible in November, vote, number one. Number two, we should pray. Uh, we need to pray that God's will is done in our elections, not just the presidential election, but, but all of our elections on down. We need to ask that, that, that the right man or woman would get put in office, uh, that whoever it is that God wants, that, that our people, that Americans would vote for the right person. Number three, I think that Christians should vote our conscience. In other words, Who do you feel like God is leading you to vote for? Your understanding of the issues, your understanding where people stand, your your listening to to the Holy Spirit and following peace like we talked about last week. Who do you feel like you should vote for? Here's the mistake we make as Americans. We vote based on identity. I'm voting for so-and-so because I'm a Republican. Or I'm voting for so-and-so because I'm a Democrat. I'm voting for so-and-so because I'm a man. I'm voting for so-and-so because I'm a woman. I'm voting for so-and-so because I'm white. Voting for so-and-so because I'm Hispanic or African-American. We, we make this mistake of thinking that somehow who we are should determine who we should vote for. When, you, and hear me, this applies in a whole lot of other ways. Your identity, if you are a believer in Jesus, your identity is Christian first, everything else second. Your age comes second, your, your economic status, whether you're a business owner or you're unemployed, wh- whether you're rich or you're poor, re- whether you're from this community or that community, whether you're from Mississippi and I love the South or, or whatever your identity might be, right? Jesus first, everything else second, like in low on the list. Um, and, and so we should not vote what's in my own best interest, What's going to get me uh, the the greatest economic benefit? What's going to do the most for me personally or for my family or for my community? What do you think God is leading you to vote for? Now, I'm not saying that none of those other things matter, and I'm not saying that, that none of those other things will ever be a deciding factor, but the first question we need to ask is not who do I vote for that's going to make things better for me. It's who do I think... Jesus would vote for, ultimately. Like, that's really the best question. Uh, Start there, and and then work your way on down the list if you need a tiebreaker. Um, This should inform our vote much more than our income level, employment status, or party affiliation. Number four thing I would say, Christians should honor whoever is elected. And this is the one where American Christians blow it hard. We miss this one so bad because we're it's America and we got free speech and we got freedom of religion and we get to say whatever we want. Um, and, and I love that about our country. I'm so grateful for our freedoms. But again, I'm a Christian first, American second. That's another one. That, that's a huge identity statement right there that we get backwards all the time. I follow Jesus first. I'm an American second. I'm grateful that I was born in America. I'm glad that that this country has so much great rooting in in the word of God. And there have been some great things that have happened in our country. There have been some awful things that have happened in our country. Uh, But I'm a Christian first and an American second. And so are you if you're a Christian. So here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.17. He says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 
Other translations say honor the king, but whether you want king or emperor, the, the point is the same. It's the person who's in charge of running the country. Honor that person. What's so interesting about this uh, is if you know when Peter was writing. Most Bible scholars think Peter wrote right around AD 60. Some might put it a couple years earlier, AD 58. Some might say AD 62 or even 64. But in any of those places where you land, the same person was the emperor of the Roman Empire, which Peter was living in. He was writing to Christians in the city of Rome. That person who was the emperor is a man named Nero. If you're familiar with church history or, or world history, you might know a little bit about Nero. Nero ruled uh, in Rome, and in AD 68, just a few years after this letter was written, there was a fire in the city of Rome that consumed 70% of the city. 70% of the city went down. Now, most scholars, historians believe that Nero actually sent the fire himself. He was mad, he was angry, he lashed out, he set the fire. But once that happened and rumors started to get out that Nero was the one who did it, he needed somebody to put the, the blame on. So he blamed Christians, this newly arising group of people who've been around for about 30 years who have the audacity to believe in one God, have the audacity to believe that this guy Jesus that they followed died and rose from the, gra the, the grave. So he started to put the onus on Christians. And what happened is a mass persecution of Christians broke out. In fact, one of the greatest persecutions of Christians in history, the first terrible persecution. There have been other persecutions from the Jews before, but when the Roman Empire got involved, it went up significantly. So we can say with confidence that Nero was by far a worse ruler than President Obama, a worse ruler than President Bush, a worse ruler than a President Trump or a President Hillary or a President Johnson or whoever wins the election this year. We, we can say with very, very high level of confidence, Nero was worse. In fact, let me read you a, a, a historical account of Nero's persecution of Christians. Don't just take my word for it. This is a, an account by a man named Tacitus. Tacitus wrote this in his book of Annals. He was born in AD 60. So eight years before this persecution began and later on in life, he recorded this persecution and that came from the, the Rome fire. He says, so to get rid of this rumor, the rumor that Nero started the fire, Nero set up, i.e. falsely accused, as the culprits and punished with the utmost refinement of cruelty, a class hatred for their abominations who are commonly called Christians. Now understand this, Tacitus is not a Christian. He's writing this from a very secular viewpoint. Um, Christus, which is Jesus, from whom their name is derived, was executed at the hands of the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. Checked for a moment, this pernicious superstition again broke out. Again, he's not a Christian. Not only in Judea, the source of the evil, but even in Rome. Accordingly, arrest was first made of those who confessed to being Christians. Then on their evidence, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much on the charge of arson, but as because of their hatred for the human race. And then he goes on to say how bad the persecution was. So if you missed all that other stuff and those words were too big and I don't understand this, it's okay. Just, just follow me on this next one. He says, besides being put to death, they were made to serve as objects of amusement, talking about the Christians. They were clothed in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others set on fire to serve to illuminate the night when daylight failed. That's what happened to my spiritual ancestors and yours. And it breaks my heart to read that. It, it angers me to read that anybody would do that to anybody. I don't care how far from God they are. But that they do that simply because they say, I believe in Jesus. It's, it's unfathomable cruelty. It's wickedness of a level that, that I 
can't comprehend. The, the only thing on, on planet Earth that's even somewhat close to this is what ISIS is doing right now. And it's hard to imagine that, that this has come back in our generation. You would think we're too far advanced and too far civilized for this. But of course we're not. And yet you read that, and this is what Nero did. This is the persecution that historically, again, this is not a, a Christian version of events to make us look like we were persecuted. This is the Roman version of events. This is their history of what they did. They lit people on fire so they had light at night. What evil. And it makes me so angry to think of that. And then let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Now that we have that context for the man who was in charge, let's read 1 Peter 2, 17 again. He says, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God. So on the same list, he says, love other Christians and fear God. Now he says, honor the emperor. The Holy Spirit, God inspired him to write this while that guy was in charge. To honor that emperor. It doesn't even make sense, right? Like it's hard to even fathom. What's the principle here? What is God trying to teach us? Well, here's what I believe. I believe that Nero and our presidents and anybody else who's ever been in authority, they're gonna answer to God for the way that they use their authority. I think Nero had a very, very uncomfortable conversation with Jesus that I would not have wanted to be a part of. But that followers, people who are under authority are gonna answer to God for the way that we honor that authority. Now, we talked a couple weeks ago on Mother's Day about the difference between honor and obedience, and there is a difference. I'm not saying that you obey every law that comes down. I'm not saying that that if our country moves to, to making Christianity illegal or begins to require things that are unlawful or ungodly, that, that we need to do those. There is a difference between honor and obedience. That's why they got burned to death, because they were disobeying the rule that you can't be a Christian. So they obeyed God, they didn't obey Nero. And that's, we're always gonna obey God above whatever the law is that comes down. But that doesn't give us an excuse to not honor the authority. So whoever gets elected in November, get it out of your system now. If you got an issue with Trump or you got an issue with Hillary or you got an issue with whoever, man, here's here's why I think this person's a bad choice for our country. I think you're totally entitled to have that conversation and share that with anybody you want to. But when that person gets elected and put in office, My opinion doesn't matter anymore. That person is in charge, and I'm going to answer to God for the way that I honor them. And we don't like this in America because we have got a rebellious spirit. We want to make sure that we can share our opinion about everything and everybody. This is the word of God, and it says this many, many other places. This isn't just in Peter. Man, honoring authority is all throughout. So whatever authority you're under, whether that's young people who just graduated, your your college professors or your college dean, uh, it's your parents, it's your boss, it's the policeman, it's whoever is in authority in our lives, our job is to honor them, not always to obey them. If they tell us to do something that dishonors God, we don't obey, but it's always our job to honor them. The way that we speak about them needs to be with honor, and it needs to be to to respect their position, whether we respect the individual or not. So now that everybody hates me because I got all political and you don't get to bash the next president, let's move on to another really popular question. Is the tithe relevant in the New Testament? (laughs) Woo! Having fun in City Church today. Uh, Is the tithe relevant in the New Testament? Bad news for you. The answer is yes. Um, Not going to break that. Not going to let you off the hook for that one. Here's why I believe the answer is yes. Because many people will point to the fact that almost all the teaching about the tithe is in the Old Testament. 
very little teaching about the tithe in the New Testament, um, that, that, hey, this is part of the law. Christians don't, don't have to honor that. I'm going to give you three reasons why I believe that we do. Um, and there's actually a fourth one that if we have time, we'll get to as well. But number one reason why I believe the tithe is relevant for you and me is that tithing predates the law. In other words, when we talk about Jesus came to fulfill the law and now you're not under the, the Old Testament law anymore, we don't have to do all the cleansing rituals in Leviticus and, and all that stuff. The law typically being referred to there is the law of Moses. Moses came, delivered the Egyptians from Israel, et cetera, et cetera. He was about 500 years after Abraham, five to 600 years after Abraham. And what we actually see in the book of Genesis is, is we see tithing pop up multiple times. The first time we see it, in my opinion, and you might disagree, is Genesis 4, 3, and 5, or 3 through 5. These are the third and fourth people on earth. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So this is like baffled Bible scholars for years, right? Why, why was one offering accepted and one was rejected? Well, I, I think the answer is in the text. I don't think we have to infer. I think we can read it right here. It says that, that Cain, over the course of time, in other words, when he got around to it, when it was convenient, he brought something to God when he had a little extra. But Abel took from the firstborn of his flock, his first fruits. See, tithing is, is about 10%, but be more, more than 10%, it's about first. It's about putting God first. It's about setting aside the first 10%. And so Abel came to God. We don't know how he knew this. We don't know if God had already spoken on this topic or Adam and Eve had taught him this or he just knew it in his heart. But Abel said, I'm giving God some of my first. Cain said, well, I've got a little extra this, this, this harvest. I'll give some of this to God. And God received and accepted and blessed the first fruits and he rejected the other. Now, this predates the law by thousands of years. This is about 3,000 years before Moses. We fast forward. Genesis moves very, very quickly. Uh, we'll, we'll see other tithes. Genesis 14, we see Abraham tithe about 550 years or so before the law. We'll see uh, Jacob tithe about 450 years before the law. We, we see all of these tithes come down before we actually get to the, the law of Moses that was fulfilled. So though that's reason number one. Second reason why I believe the tithe is for us as New Testament believers is Jesus affirmed the tithe. Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 is speaking, and he's speaking against the, the teachers of the law and Pharisees. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In other words, he says, Tithing's not the most important thing. We don't teach that you have to tithe to be a member here. You don't, we're not, we don't require it. We, we don't require tithing to serve here at City Church. That's not the most important thing. There are more important things. But I do believe it's obedience to God, and therefore it's important. Uh, and so Jesus speaking on it, he says, you've got it wrong. You think that you're special because you give to God when you're neglecting all this other stuff, and, and you think that tithing somehow buys you favor with God. Tithing will not buy you favor with God. It won't. Tithing is not going to buy you a place in heaven. And not tithing isn't going to condemn you to hell. So please don't misinterpret anything I'm saying today. But I do believe that Christians are supposed to tithe. Uh, because Jesus says you should not have neglected the former. This was his opportunity. If tithing was done with Jesus, this was his chance. He's talking about tithing. You know what? A time is coming where we don't need to do this anymore. We need to worry about the stuff that's more important. The tithing is in the past. He doesn't say that. He says you should not have neglected the former. And you should have done the latter. So, so Jesus affirmed the tithe. And number three, and this is the biggest one, it's the one that I've discovered most recently, but this is the one why I am all about the New Testament tithe. 
I'm so confident in this, and this is going to be a little deeper and a little more complicated, so stick with me, but I think it's important. Um, Number three, the tithe was brought to Melchizedek. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. It's on the screen. So Melchizedek's a tough one to spend. Spell. Everybody can just say it because it's fun to say. Just say Melchizedek. Melchizedek. All right. In the Old Testament, there were three offices. So the Old Testament had three separation of powers, just like America. You might not remember this from government class, but we have the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, right? Uh, So we have the separation of powers. Well, in the Old Testament, there was a separation of powers. There were three offices in the Old Testament. There was the prophet. The prophet's job was to speak the word of God. Sometimes that was talking about the future, but it wasn't necessarily the future. It was just speaking what God had told him to say. Then there was the priest. The priest's job was to stand between God and the people. The priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice for the the sins of the people. So he, he interceded for the people. And then number three, there was the king. And the king's job was to rule the nation, to make decisions for the people. In the Old Testament, Nobody held all three of those offices. Sometimes people would hold two of them. David, for instance, was both a king and a prophet. Multiple priests were both priests and prophets. But nobody ever held all three offices except one individual. And that guy's name was Melchizedek. And we find Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. And he he has an encounter with Abraham in Genesis 14. We don't have time to read it this morning. I encourage you, if if you're interested in this and you want to verify, fact check me, please go back and read Genesis 14 and you'll see this. But it talks about him again in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 7. And here's why I think he's so significant. Melchizedek is the, there there are many people in the Old Testament who are types or shadows or or basically foreshadow Jesus. So in other words, uh, David. When David goes up against Goliath, he he destroys the giant for the people. That's a representative of Jesus. Jesus destroys the giant of sin. He destroys death for us, right? So he's a a foreshadow of Christ. He's a lesser version. Uh, He's he's obviously not Jesus, but he's giving us a hint at what's to come. Melchizedek's the, the greatest Old Testament representation of Christ. Nobody in the Old Testament matches up as many characteristics of Jesus as Melchizedek. So watch what Hebrews says about him in in chapter 7. And again, this is maybe going to be deeper than stuff we normally cover. Stick with me. I will explain it if it goes over your head. Just hang with me. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the David of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So, So Melchizedek blessed him. Abraham, in response, gave him a tenth of all that he had. Tenth, of course, literally means tithe, or tithe literally means tenth. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. So again, attributes to Jesus. Jesus is the king of righteousness. Jesus is the king of peace. Um, without father or mother, without genealogy, doesn't. I don't think it means that he literally didn't have a father or mother. I think it means that we don't know who they were, but possibly it could, it could be that he didn't have a father or mother. Um, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Nobody else in scripture that I'm aware of has ever said to resemble the son of God. Melchizedek was pretty important. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who became priest to collect a tithe for Tenth from the people, that is from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Remember that, really important. The lesser is blessed by the greater. In other words, you don't bless God, God blesses you, right? Because he's greater. 
verse 8. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who's declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. All right, let me break all that down for you. Um, Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a foreshadow, a representation of Jesus. Uh, And so I believe that the tithe is New Testament because the tithe is brought to Jesus. In other words, when you tithe, you're not tithing to city church. You're not tithing to whatever other church you go to that you're hanging out with us this morning. The tithe is worship to Jesus. In the same way that Abraham met Melchizedek and said, wow, you're greater than me. I'm going to honor you with this, that I come before Jesus with the tithe. And, and those of you, I didn't even say this in first service because most people in first service know there's probably more people here that don't. My wife and I, we, we believe this wholeheartedly, that we, we give 20% of our income. We double our tithe. Um, so this is not something I'm, I'm not selling you something that I'm not smoking, right? <laughs> like uh, we're, we're invested on this uh, in, in a deep way. Um, so Abraham tied them a Kizedek, a representative of Jesus. I want to read one more verse one more time for you. Hebrews 7, 8. In the one case, the 10th is collected by people who die. Talking about priests, talking about pastors, we're people who die. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. Who is declared to be living? Not just God, Jesus. Jesus is the only one who died, but he still lives, right? Who, who ascended into heaven, he didn't die. He's the one who's declared to be living. And so the 10th is collected by him. So if the tithe is just Old Testament, how is the 10th collected by Jesus? See, the, the tithe goes to Jesus. The Old Testament saints, they didn't even know this. They didn't even grasp it. They didn't have a clue of it. It was, it was saved for us. And so we have the opportunity to come to Jesus, this second Melchizedek, this greater Melchizedek, and say, I'm tithing to you. He says, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In other words, I'm blessed by honoring him in this way. I'm lesser, and God's going to bless. Again, this is not an issue of your salvation. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't withhold the tithe your way into hell. This is not an issue of your salvation. It's an issue of of honoring God, of obeying God, And, and I think it's so, so important for us as New Testament believers. And here's the one thing I will say is different between Old Testament and New Testament, besides they didn't know they were given to Jesus. Tithing is the minimum expected from God's people in the New Testament. In other words, in the Old Testament, you just had to give 10% and you were good. In the New Testament, they were selling land and property and bringing everything they had and and giving it to God. Um, Now, I'm not telling you to go sell your house and come live at the church. Don't misunderstand me. Um, What I am saying is I believe that as you're going to start at 10% and God's going to take you to a deeper place. God's going to call you to more. And that may not necessarily be given to the church, although I do believe tithing is to the church. That may be generosity in many other directions, to a cause, to an organization, to a missionary, to to many other things. But there's so many things that God's called the church to do that that we can't do. And I don't mean we city church. I mean we, the churches in America, because God's people don't tithe. Hear me on this. Don't don't lose. I'm almost done talking about money, I promise. 7% of American Christians tithe. 7%. 7%. So less than a tithe, tithe. Um, and we wonder why churches aren't feeding the poor. We wonder why churches aren't helping the homeless. We wonder why we have no relevance in communities. It's because God's people aren't honoring him financially. If we would do this, the impact we could have out there is so much greater. Now, City Church, we're above average. There's a lot more than 7% of our members who tithe, but we're still well below 50. Um, we can do better. 
We can do better. And so I encourage you to take that step. I guarantee you the impact we can make in this city that God's calling us to make would be so much greater if we did. Two more quick questions and we're done with this series and you're out of here for the day. Second to last question, is lying sometimes okay? They, this is the text message. Rehab lied to hide the spies and God blessed her. Um, I don't know if that's autocorrect or just a misspelling, but it's actually Rahab, but I was like, that's awesome. I got to leave that in there. So rehab lied to hide the spies. So if you're not familiar with the story, uh, in the book of Joshua, they're coming in to, to take the promised land and they're starting in the city of Jericho and Jericho has these high walls. So Joshua, the general sends in two spies to scout out the city to decide, hey, what are we going to do? How are we going to come in and take over the city? And so they come in and uh, there's a woman named Rahab and she's a prostitute and she sees the spies and she knows there, there's people coming, there's guards coming and they're going to kill them. So she hides these spies and lies to the guards. The guards ask if you've seen them. She says, nope. And they go on their way and their lives are spared. They, the people of Israel win this massive victory in Jericho. So therefore, she was blessed for lying, so therefore we can lie, right? Not exactly. Um, my best answer to this question would be ish. Um, and, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, Rahab lied to protect life. Um, and so modern example of this may be like Nazi Germany, right? You got Corey Ten Boom or, or Alfred Schindler who the Nazis are coming around looking for Jews, and they say, nope, haven't seen anybody, and, and they're hiding Jews. Um, I think that is a justifiable lie. I think that's, a, that's an instance where it is okay to lie. If you are not protecting life with your lie, I think you should not lie. Um, the, the Ten Commandments are clear, thou shalt not lie. Now, I, we know there's an, ex, there's an exception for thou shalt not kill, because there are times where God, there's war and other things. Um, I think there may be an exception on the lying front, but number one, you better be protecting somebody's life. I mean, like somebody's holding a gun to your head and asking if there's anybody else in your house and you say no to protect your kid in the other room. Like that, they better be like that level. Um, and, and number two, you better be confident that, that God's leading you uh, to that. So I'm not giving you a green card to go out and lie because you want to be convenient or I'm going to lie to my boss and then I'll make more money and then I can tithe more. That's not what this is about, um, right? Like we're not going to lie unless somebody's life is in danger and then it might kind of sort of be okay, but be careful with that. Uh, last question, almost done with eight weeks of controversy at City Church. If God doesn't make mistakes, why did he flood the earth? If God doesn't make mistakes, why did he flood the earth? In other words, when, when God flooded the earth during Noah's day, he said, I want, I regret my decision to make mankind. I regret making man, I'm gonna wipe them out. They're so wicked. Um, they're, they're killing each other. They're sacrificing each other to false gods. They're, they're slaughtering each other. They're raping each other. Everything is so bad and so evil and so wicked. I'm just ending it right here. So does that mean that God made a mistake in making mankind? Well, obviously this is, you can have your opinion, uh, but my opinion is that God doesn't make mistakes. God made mankind, we talked about a couple weeks ago, out of love. It was a loving move to give us an opportunity. And a lot of people have blown that opportunity and done some awful things with it, done some terrible things with it. And Noah's day, it was really, really bad. God said, we're going to hit the reset button. We're going to start this over. And he looked down and he found one family, eight individuals, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. He said, I'm going to spare you. Noah, build an ark. And just like Melchizedek is an Old Testament representative of Jesus, the ark is an Old Testament representative of Jesus. 
In the same way that the ark carried eight people through the wickedness of their generation, through the storm all around them, through the dangers of the flood, Jesus says, I'll carry you through whatever dangers, whatever junk, whatever wickedness is all around you. Come get in me and I'll protect you. Now, that doesn't mean that, that things are never uncomfortable. Doesn't mean that things are never difficult as Christians. I think sometimes we make Christianity out to be like, come follow Jesus and everything will be awesome. And then we follow Jesus and everything's not awesome. And we're like, you lied to me. Um, tell that to the, the people who Nero lit on fire, that everything's gonna be awesome if you follow Jesus. You can't. It was difficult. It was uncomfortable. It was suffering. So I don't think that Jesus means you'll never suffer. I do think that Jesus means I'm gonna get you through it. And those people who burned on those poles, they're in a great place today. They're in an awesome place today. I think he gave them strength through their suffering. Now, I don't think that most of us in this room are gonna be lit up and set on fire or gonna have animal skins put on, tied to our body and thrown in front of wild dogs. Most of us aren't gonna suffer to that degree. Most of us as Americans, our life's pretty easy, pretty awesome compared to most people who have lived on this earth. But whether it's awesome or not, Jesus says, I'm gonna get you through. Come follow me, come abide in me and I will carry you through just like the ark carried them through. I'll carry you past the wickedness of your generation. I'll carry you past the wickedness of your own heart. And that's why I need Jesus because my heart is wicked. Because it's easy to sit and look at all these awful things that other people have done and, and point fingers at them, but, but I got junk in me too. And that's why I need Jesus. That's why I had to repent and we have to repent and give our life over to him. And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're far from God, maybe, maybe you've known Jesus in the past, but you haven't been living for him recently, I wanna offer you an opportunity to take that step and say, I'm repenting today. I wanna know that I know that I'm right with God. I wanna know that I know that that ark, that protection of Jesus through the storms of life is for me. So if you would bow your head, close your eyes. Every, no one looking around very quickly, we're almost done. If that's you today and you're far from God, if you just slip up your hand, I wanna pray for you. I'm not gonna embarrass you. I'm not gonna call you out. But if you need Jesus today, you need to repent and give your life to him today. Slip up your hand right where you're at and pray with you. I see your hand. Anybody else? Count me in on that prayer, Pastor Troy. You can put your hand down. Anybody else say, count me in on that? Praise God. Praise God. We're gonna lead this one in a prayer of repentance today. And if you're a Christian here, I'm gonna ask you to pray this right along with us. But there's nothing supernatural about this prayer. There's nothing magical about it. All it is is an opportunity for your mouth to agree with your heart. You wouldn't have responded to this if you were, God wasn't doing something in your heart, if you didn't realize you needed him. So we're gonna give you a chance just to confess that, to confess Jesus is your Lord, repent and turn from your sin. So if you would, Christians, and, and definitely this one who raised your hand, repeat after me. Say, Father God, I come before you today, a sinner. I know I haven't lived the way you want me to. And so today I turn from my sin and I turn to Jesus. God, forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean, make me new. Jesus, I give you the throne of my heart. Come in and be my savior, be my king, be my Lord. I love you. Thank you for dying for me. I choose to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, come on, would you celebrate this one who's come home this morning?